listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello, I'm Robin Whittaker. And I'm Fran Barber. And this is the episode for Pentecost 12, where Fran and I will be discussing Genesis 45, verses 1 to 15. We'll have a brief look at Romans 11, verses 1 to 2, and 29 to 32, and a deeper dive into Matthew 15, 21 to 28. But we're going to start with our continuous Old Testament reading here in Genesis, and this kind of picks up from last week. And it really is when you look into the backstory, and preachers are going to need to do this to preach on this passage, it really is of the level of days of our lives type (laughs) drama. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly a very emotional um, situation that we're coming into here at verse 1, chapter 45, which might seem a bit mysterious. Joseph could no longer control himself, so why could he no longer? What has been happening leading up to this point? So... How how much should we be telling? I think we've got to tell a bit of the story. And um, we left this story when the brothers had sold him to Midianite traders and Mm. he ends up being a slave in Egypt. Many years have um, taken place in between um, where he's worked as a slave originally in Potiphar's house. He gets falsely accused there of sexually abusing the wife who wants to seduce him and ends up in prison. I mean, drama, drama, everywhere we look. Um, But it's while in prison that he gets the attention of Pharaoh who's been having having troubling dreams and all his normal dream diviners can't interpret them and eventually he hears rumour of this Mm. man in prison who apparently is interpreting other people's dreams and thus begins Joseph's rise to... Second in command in Egypt, eventually. Yeah, and in in this passage calls, called ruler over the land of Egypt. He himself Mm. introduces himself as I'm ruler over the land. He's still enslaved but has attained a position of enormous power because he distributes uh, the grain in a time of famine. This has echoes for me, just as an aside, of a lot of convicts' lives in uh, colonial Australia who came here under great sentence of usually fairly trivial crimes, but technically prisoners who then get grants of huge amounts of land and become, you know, yeah, quite significant leaders in the community. But I digress. No, and, and there'd be resonances in other sort of like colonial powers, right, where even the local people under colonial power, individuals can do well and thrive, but the system is still of such that you're a, you're a slave in that system mm. and, um, and, yeah, so... We're in this world of of slavery and trading bodies, and now the desperation of um, what we'll we'll learn. Joseph's family have come to him to buy grain. They because haven't. It's a famine. It's a famine. Um, their father has sent the other brothers to buy grain. In the preceding chapters, Joseph has recognised them, but they have not recognised him. We should perhaps just say that the famine is everywhere, but it hasn't been as bad in Egypt because of Joseph's forbear, um, for being able to foresee Pharaoh's dreams and advise him, advise yeah. him accordingly. Yeah, so to that, store up. Yeah. So he's got he's got grain, which is why the brothers have come. Yes, and so in the preceding chapter, I mean, again, so much drama, but a brief summary is that uh, Joseph has sold them grain. He becomes the trickster. We've talked Mm. before about these trickster. So he now tricks the brothers by planting silver and his precious goblet in Benjamin, who's the other 
precious brother, um, the other son of Rachel, um, and the youngest in in his bag, and then sends people after them, lets them go, but then goes, oh, one of you has stolen something, and they're all like, no, we, we, we have haven't. To, we have to check your bags. Yeah, exactly. Oops. So sets them up. You know, it's yep. like planting the drugs or something. Yeah. And then they all get hauled back, and he says, well, you've got to leave Benjamin here with me, and they're like, so just before this, one of the brothers has said. We can't leave this younger son with you. You, you know, let find another punishment. Take one of us because our our father has these two precious sons of the wife he loved, who's now died, and the other brother is dead. So Joseph, mm. and we he, he can't it, take it if this if this son exactly is taken as well. So Joseph has perhaps learnt for the first time the extent of his father's grief, and even there's hints of the extent of the regret of the brothers. Yeah, for having for having done being this, responsible. So hence, Joseph can no longer control himself. So and he weeps. I mean, this language here is if he just lets go and weeps. It's not mm. just a mere he cried a, a single tear. He is sobbing in front of these men he has power over, and they're probably thinking, "What on earth mm. is going on?" He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. All of the Egyptians yes, implied the, the whole of Egypt. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he's wailing <laughs> in a very yeah. undignified manner. Yeah, so yeah. we've got a lot of emotion and drama. Um, and then he reveals himself. So in many ways, this is a a sort of a an identity revealing story yeah. where Joseph basically says, "I'm the brother you thought you'd killed." And they're not like, "Oh my goodness, wow!" They're dismayed. No, I think they're terrified. He's got yes. power now, so he now could do anything to them, right? And um, he's demonstrated that he's had them arrested. Mm-hmm. And then, well, the first thing he says is, "Come closer to me and pray." It's quite pious. I mean, yeah. Joseph still has some delusions of grandeur going on, maybe fulfilled now because of his position, but um, yeah. And then the God appears for the first time in our hearing of this narrative yeah. in the lectionary, verse 5. Um, Will Gaffney's got uh, qu- quite a good um, little ex- excursus on this passage in the working pre- preacher site historically, but yeah. Um, just points out that for God sent me before you to preserve life. Um, she describes this as one reading is that this is Joseph's perception of his circumstances. Um, but if we read it uncritically, it can be a sanction for slavery and for all the things that are really in the background here that we, we just provide that theological gloss. Yeah, no, I think that's really important because we get here and again there's, this happens in various ways in the Hebrew Bible of – a way of making sense of trauma, uh, you know, of, of terrible things happening is to say, well, God had a plan. Mm. This was always, you know, God sent me here so that I could save mm. your lives. And, you know, at one level we might say that's wonderful and true and if that is Joseph's sense of I've fulfilled a purpose and I've found purpose and meaning in this out of this terrible circumstances. Um, but, yeah, we do need to be careful that we're not just saying, well, it's okay then that bad things happen because God's got a plan mm. and it'll all work. Like it, it's not an excuse for over, overlooking injustice and systems that oppress, um, which I think it has historically um, kind of allowed. But, I mean, so this that our care around that statement still enables us to say that the movement of God has been occurring amongst these people through the famine yeah. um, to bring us to this point where s- sort of free salvation, so to speak, appears yeah. in the form of food. <laughs> yeah. 
And there's there's a little detail I don't think we commented on last week when we talked about um, the earlier Genesis 37 passage where when the brothers throw him in the pit and before they sell him, they sit down and they break bread and they have a meal and Joseph isn't fed. And then in this passage we've got all this emphasis on, you know, come to me, dwell here, I will sustain you, mm. um, you know, so much of this is about um, I will feed you during the years of famine. Um, we, I think we've got some, it's you know, quite juxtaposition, we talked about it? reversals last yeah. time, but, um, you know, we've got these reversals even around food and who gets to eat and who can therefore have access to the That's food. That's a very powerful comparison. I Yeah. Perhaps um, be worth highlighting. Yeah. Sermon. And, and really, I mean, so it's a scene of the – Joseph re- reveals himself and then um, – it's it's a story of reconciliation. I mean, there's lots of hugging and weeping and kissing, and mm. I'll look after you and come live in this land. And um, you know, a bit like the Jacob and Esau narrative, many chapters back, we get these this terrible behaviour, but we also get these moments of reconciliation. And maybe there's something, you know. So we've got two theological planes. I think this operates on. There's the one where Joseph says this was all God's plan, and He's used me for good. Uh, which we've already noted we need to be careful with. But at, at, at the more human level, I think there's a grace in this story that even despite basically his brothers selling him after threatening to kill him, he can find forgiveness and there can be reconciliation. Yeah. So there's like huge hope and grace in that as well. Yeah, so there's a focus you could take on the Joseph and his brothers and the experience of what's happening here as you describe it. But there is also a focus on... Um, I suppose the history of Jacob here, you know, that that actually a lot of Jacob was an old man. He had lots of children and yeah. blessing, but there were episodes in his life that were awful. Yeah, um, and that was was we've we've alluded to already that God does not forget us through these dark times. Yeah. So for Joseph, you know, he. Um, longed for Rachel and he and Rachel to have a child and she ended up dying in childbirth and, mm. you know, all sorts of yep. dreadful things. But that um, God does not forget what we might forget in order to, to yep. um, be at peace, I suppose. And also, and this might segue us into the Romans reading, you know, the the grander theme here throughout Genesis is that despite both kind of you know, worldly things that happen like a famine and slavery mm. um, and despite the terrible behaviour of individuals who steal birthrights and trick and threaten to kill their brothers, God is faithful and the promises of God that are still fulfilled. And healing and forgiveness appears yep. possible even yeah. even in this yep. messiest of places. Um, and another th- focus could be on the stewardship of our own relationships. Um, mm. And, I mean, we haven't mentioned – we've mentioned that Joseph's a slave and he rises um, to prominence and power here. Yeah. But then he ends up being an enslaver himself. Yeah, so he does. So at the end of, chap- I think, in Chapter 20, 47, 47, we yep. find out that he enslaved the Egyptians. So, yeah, it's power, complicity – um how we how we conduct ourselves i suppose yeah and in those dynamics 
and again that I mean I take a strange comfort in these stories that you know these are God's chosen people and these are the sort of so-called fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel mm. and but the Bible doesn't feel the need to tell a sanitized version like we've got their messiness and their bad behavior and we've got the complexity of a Joseph character who on the one hand is faithful to God in such a way that God can use him to do good things, but also has delusions of grandeur and also is a trickster and also will enslave people despite having been enslaved. So, you know, we've got these morally ambiguous characters, but I personally find a certain kind of comfort that this is who God chooses, you know, very human people. And we as the church today might reflect on, well, you know, Throwing stones in glass houses. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We have our own, you know, things we need to confess and things we need to reconcile over. Um, This does not make us any less God's people. Um, But, yeah. Mm. Shall we move on to Romans or Matthew at this point? I think let's go to Romans and and quickly look at Romans 11, uh, 1 to 2, and then it jumps ahead to 29 to 32. A short passage from Romans Mm. 11, but as with Paul always. Dense. (laughs) (laughs) Snap. (laughs) Um, But super important to underline at any time, but um, perhaps particularly this week with the Canaanite woman reading alongside it. But um, emphasising here that the promise of God has not stopped for the Jewish people no. Because they don't recognise Jesus. That's right. As Messiah. Yes. So the, the question Paul poses here at the start of chapter 11, um, to me links into this wider Genesis narrative, right? He, he, he identifies himself as an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. This is his beloved mm-hmm, younger brother, mm-hmm. right? So we've located him in that longer story. Um, and he's posing the question, in response to what's gone before, if the Jews have rejected Jesus, does this mean God's rejected his people? It's a question of where's, where does God's promise go, mm. right? If, if How faithful is God if God if, is if, fickle enough? Well, if God's own people can't recognise yeah. what God is doing. And that's really the kind of question he's addressing here, I think. Um, and it's very clear, by no means has God rejected his people. Yes, exactly. So just to highlight... Any supersessionist tendencies in the room? Yeah, that's right. This is not about Christians replacing Jews or the Jews not being deserving or anything else, but rather about the faithfulness of God. Expands, but does not – yes, expands. Yep. And there's reference in this language in verse sort of 30 towards the end of our passage in Romans 11, you know, as you were once disobedient to God, so the kind of disobedience or bad behaviour we've just talked about in the Genesis story, you know – He's he's personalizing you and your own whoever whoever the Romans are, probably more Gentile believers. Um, you know, you too have been disobedient, but you have this chance of of mercy because of who God is. So I think we could find some nice theological connections here to that Genesis narrative and what Paul's doing. Yeah, well, the mercy of God that has come come through to make good of the mess that we've already talked yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Or make some good of. <laughs> yes. Anything else you want to say about Romans? Uh, not at this point, but it does tie into the Canaanite woman's faith. 
Yes. So um, let's go there and we can try and pull some threads together at the end. So this is Matthew 15 verses 21 to 28. The lectionary does have in parenthesis 10 to 20, which yeah, is about being clean and unclean. Which is important because Gentiles are seen as unclean and so, the dogs we're going to get referenced in the story are unclean animals and Jesus is actually sort of disrupting some of those categories from the Torah. Probably, would you say it is necessary to read that no. as well? No. I suspect um, – because you can talk about that easily enough from the You could probably itself. just draw in what you need to, including verse 20, which is, you know, these are not what defile a person. Um, you know, to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. In other words, Jesus is already... Setting us up. Setting us up to recognise that the things we've called unclean are not actually what defiles. And then we're going to get a story about an outsider woman who's called a dog, who's an unclean animal... And the point will be, actually, she's a person of faith. So the framing is important, but I don't think you necessarily need to read all the verses. Okay. So Jesus has gone to a district of Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile territory. So Mm. um, we know the bigger picture of Matthew. It's a Jewish gospel, so to speak. Jesus is the Moses, the new teacher. Yep. Um, So this is a a slight disruption to that because – we're now in Gentile territory and Gentile, a Gentile is going to be perceived positively, the insult notwithstanding. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and so Tyre is a large, this is a big district town, um, probably quite wealthy. And from what we know of the setting, uh, there were agrarian Jewish areas around Tyre that fed, so farming communities that fed um, Tyre. So we're going to see there's multiple layers of class and gender and ethnicity that complicate this story <laughs> um, and so we're, we're in so Jesus is a Jewish kind of Galilean I don't like to use the word peasant because it has a loaded kind of later connotation but you know not, he's not a high class wealthy man is in this district where there are wealthy Greek people mm. the other thing I think is really important to note is the language in verse 22 so she's called a Canaanite woman and she calls him son of David. So the first thing to note, in, in Mark's gospel, we might know her as the Syrophoenician woman. Matthew, I think, is deliberately playing with that tradition. Canaanites don't really exist anymore at this at this point, at this in, point. in the first century. Um, but they're the enemy of Israel, right? Israel uh-huh. took the land of the Canaanites and basically drove them out or killed them. And King David was one of the people who did that. So the invasion of the land had happened before that, but he had continued to kill any Canaanites left in the land. So this is a typology of arch enemies. Yes. So she's given this ethnic othering name, the Canaanites, which are the... The murderers. The the worshippers of other gods, the people not to be trusted, even though they're probably actually very close in terms of their actual ethnicity with what we would call Israelites. Um. And she calls him son of David, which is recognising him by his royal Jewish identity. So we've immediately got a setup that we should be very alert to the kind of racial, ethnic layers going on here. And she hasn't approached um, obsequiously or no. servilely. She's shouting. Yes. She comes out and starts shouting. Yeah, not excuse me. Not kneeling. No. Have you got a moment? Yes. 
So um, some commentators suggest she could actually be quite a wealthy, high-class Greek woman mm-hmm. um, and she's almost kind of demanding Jesus heal her daughter. Um, and that, again, upsets some of our power. We like, you know, the story has been read as Jesus being horribly mean to this poor yeah, woman. And we have. But uh, we want to disrupt that a little bit. We do. We don't want it to be a sermon about offence, <laughs> that yes. she's offended. At, um, it's not the main theological point here. No. Yeah, although we can't ignore those dynamics. But, yeah, yeah. that shouting is important, her posture. Um, and then he did not answer her at all. No. So, Jesus, I mean. I don't think we can hide the fact that Jesus, by our c- current standards, appears to be incredibly rude in this story. Like, I don't want to over-rescue mm. Jesus either. He seems to just ignore him and the disciples say, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and we get this classic Matthean vo- verse, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So a statement here about a very specific and narrow mission to the Jews, which Matthew's gospel is going to disrupt. Mm. But at this point, it's you know this story is one of the, the the turning points. So in Matthew, we start very firmly in Judaism. We get statements like that from mm. Jesus, but by the time we get to the end of Matthew, we'll get this commission: go make disciples of all nations, the ethne, yeah, all Gentiles. So yeah. um, he says that paradigmatic statement about coming to that lost house of Israel, but then she kneels and worships him. Or kneels and I don't know if I'd say worship, but she... um, Well, she's not shouting. No, she's not shouting. She's changed posture. She has changed posture. Maybe she's realised that shouting at him hasn't helped Um, and she asks for help. It is a posture of sort of um, a certain kind of submission, really, like a begging. Pleading, pleading. Yeah. and what is really interesting here is that she doesn't disagree with Jesus' statement that he's come to the lost ha- to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and that the main food goes to the Israelites. She's like, well, yes, but but yeah, God's abundance is such that there are so many crumbs that there is enough yep. for those outside. Those dogs. Yes. Who incidentally is us. Yeah. We, I mean, yes, we, we should also remember we are the dogs, we are the unclean Gentiles. If, so if um, we put the Romans passage alongside that, it's this um, reminder of the home of this blessing. Yeah. <laughs> that the first servers are the Jewish people and Israel. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really matter in the end what the what the order is, practically speaking, but actually theologically it matters enormously because the church has assumed that we are owners of this thing. Yes. And that we have not received it in mercy and the mercy of God and Israel. Yeah. Um, that, that we've become proprietors of this. Yeah. And I think we've got to read this too um, at, a, at a literary level. Um, this falls between, not immediately, but between two feeding stories Mm. in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, One we had a couple of weeks ago in the lectionary, the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, where there were 12 baskets left over. 12 tribes of Israel. And then in the next feeding story, there'll be seven baskets left over, seven being the number of perfection or universality in the Gospels in this world. Um, So even those numbers are significant in the feeding stories. But the point is the crumbs left over... Are enough in God's kingdom are abundant. Mm. The, 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 they're enough to feed 
you know. So it's working with a sense of God's abundance here that she seems to get. So that's where her faith, that's I think the so. point, that her faith is in this, that God's yeah. supply will be sufficient and over-sufficient. Yes, and Je- I mean, for Jesus to say, great is your faith and then let it be done as you wish. Again, I think we should see this intention with the previous story of Je- the walking on the sea and he calls Peter, you have little faith. So we've we've got to notice these pairs in Matthew. We've got Peter, this great disciple, to whom the keys of mm, that's the true. kingdom will be given in Matthew's gospel um, and the power to forgive sins and all this stuff. He's of little faith. He is of little faith and this Canaanite woman the enemy of Israel has great faith proclaimed of her. So our, our, all our sort of expectations are completely disrupted by the end. Yeah, that's, that's very And her powerful. daughter's healed yeah, yeah. is the outcome, yeah. Um, I want to give a shout-out to, and we can put a link in the show notes to, there's a chapter in a book Monica and I edited called Terror in the Bible, a chapter by Dorothy Lee who talks about this passage in Mark in its history of interpretation and the various approaches. And she talks about, you know, just four very briefly. So I want to outline three of them and it could be useful if you want to preach on this to think a preacher can't cover all the dynamics of this story. So, um, But to be aware of the ones you aren't covering. Yes, and, and to think about what avenue so one of them is missional so it's the stuff we've mentioned about this is a story that functions to show the opening up and that faith can be found in the gentile community so that's the kind of missional element uh one is pedagogical so uh, that that this is about teaching matthew's community something so it's functioning as a kind of exemplar pedagogical story so the disciples and later generations reading the gospel will learn um that gets controversial because the question is who's the teacher is Jesus modelling kind of bad behaviour as a negative example so we'll all learn? Or in fact, a lot of feminist scholars want to say that the woman has taught Jesus something with her persistence. Just and to be difficult, do you have to have a teacher figure? Can it not be pedagogical in and of itself and I, therefore I think, there be yeah. nuance? Anyway, no, I, I, w- I think on. that's a very fair question, yes. Okay. But that's the debate that comes with that. Sure. Um, and there's the paradigmatic, um, as as Dorothy Lee calls it, which is this idea that this is a story that um, acts as a, a, a paradigm for discipleship. So we look to her as a model of faith. She's persistent. She adapts posture. So the stuff you were pointing out, Fran, of you, she moves from shouting to kneeling, to you know, and exemplifies great faith and persistence and resilience. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's the Christological one, which is about what is revealed about Jesus in this discourse um, as as the Lord, not just to Israel, but as the Lord to the nations as well. So lots of ways we can read this story. My bias would be I'd want to do the last one any time as alongside yes. any of the others. I've yes, and I think you can layer them together, but you might not be able to do all of them no. in depth. And I've given you a very brief pricey of the dynamics of those. Thank you. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.